raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favourite things. I always look forward to favourites, and tonight's guest, I wonder if he's broadcasting, talking to us tonight from The Hideout. How's that for a subtle segue, Pete Smith? Never mind the subtle segue. Good evening to you. Good evening. It's uh, it's not just a subtle segue. It's a it's a promo. Thank you very much for the plug. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And for those who aren't aware of uh, why I say from the hideout, you and Tony Martin and Jovan Caro uh, do a podcast. Welcome to the world of podcasting, Pete. Yes. Well, I think as uh, uh, Tony may have pointed out in talking to you and Philip maybe in the past, I think uh, he uh, he's, he's very well aware that there's a 25-year difference between he and I and 25 years back to uh, Jovan. So we're spanning, you know, more than just decades. Yes, it's... <laughs> It's it's great too. I, I'm very much enjoying the podcast. I have to say, and why should it not be great when you invented it? Well, isn't that funny? Well, it's actually your uh, broadcasting mate that really. I I don't know actually who came up, but it certainly owes a lot to Philip to Philip Brady, because you know Philip's been around forever, so we don't have to explain who he is, do we? To even people interstate, but. You know, it's just quite amazing, really, that uh, we would look back and realise that what we were doing playing radio stations under uh, my house in Kew uh, was really uh, the equivalent of a modern-day podcast. Well, it is. The the similarities are are quite uh, amazing in that I'm sitting here at the moment at home recording this, which will go to air and also as a podcast. Uh, and what you and Philip did all those years ago was sit at home, uh, record something, and send it out on uh, on reel to reel. But also a, a wire I heard you talking about, which I didn't quite understand that concept. Oh well, I don't. You know, I didn't want to get into too much of the technicalities. Not that there's much technicality in it. it when you have a uh, well, in the old days anyway, a front door bell went through to the bell in the house. It was just very, very well. It was virtually no voltage, much at all. It was just a very thin wire that went through to a little bell or a speaker in the house. And uh, I suppose a lot of houses have still got then. You know, it doesn't carry any mains voltage or anything. It's probably just uh, battery operated. But we used to run from my little transformer, my amplifier, if you like, and microphone. My dad rigged up this bell wire, uh, which went for, honest to God, how it ever carried the signal. But it did up over back fences to uh, a kid's bedroom about a not a block away but a couple of house lots away and uh, we put alligator clips onto the back of the speaker and then I had anybody didn't get electrocuted doing that (laughs) (laughs) and I don't think really I don't think anybody ever listened but we didn't care we were so serious about it the the likes of Philip and Mike Walsh remember Mike of course oh of course yes Mike's still alive and kicking in that and uh, he kicked on well didn't he he did all right. and I love his story that he only ever really got into the entertainment industry because he wanted to own a theatre and uh, he thought that was a good way to actually do it. Well, his mum and dad owned a pub in Fitzroy and uh, maybe, uh, you know, the ownership of uh, property 
came about that way. But yes, well, he didn't live that far away from the theatre he now owns, Her Majesty's, which is uh, quite an achievement. We uh, we think he's quite an inspiration. Oh, very much so. Very much so. Now, uh, so I love I love the um, I love the the beginnings that you and Phil had there in in doing that uh, because it's it's so reminiscent you, when you speak to many of the great legends of uh, of the media industry, they all seem to have started with something not not exactly the same but similar. You, you hear of them uh, uh, recording themselves onto reel to reel, back announcing songs, and and just you know basically learning to broadcast in their own bedroom where possible. Well, perhaps in this day and age of streaming and television and everything to the screen, whether it's education or entertainment, so much is to the screen. I say if you can take a young person to a live performance of something, whether it be in a, a church hall in Muralbark or Her Majesty's in the city, if you can only take them to a live performance, it really opens things out. As wonderful as uh, the videos and the streaming and the emails are, it's true, isn't it? Everything now, education, you know, with your children, I know they've they're probably beyond that now, but everything is to the screen. And I think if you can just get out into live areas, it's uh, so much uh, well uh, me- more meaningful, for one thing. And when we were growing up, I mean, radio, and there was just radio, television wasn't even thought of, uh, as growing up as kids, we watched the radio. We yes. watched Superman, The Search for the Golden Boomerang, When a Girl Marries Martin's Corner, you name it. We watched those shows, that flickering little light on the mantel radio on the mantelpiece. Uh, Mum would be doing knitting on the couch, Dad would be reading The Herald, and here's the kid on the floor, uh, kids everywhere really, looking at the radio, just uh, the theatre of imagination. And there's radios were occasionally the the big sort of centerpiece of a lounge room as well, weren't they? The big imposing ones. There were there were the 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 smaller Mickey Mantle type ones, but uh, a, a lovely big. Uh, I can't even think of a brand. Probably maybe a Pi radio. P-Y. Oh no, yes, no, absolutely. Chrysler's Pies, HMV, you name it. Yes. And, uh, all I might say. Uh, unless I'm corrected by one of your listeners, all really manufactured in Australia, Mm. as were TVs, of course, when they came in. Some of the components, of course, would have come in from overseas, but they were manufactured here, and we've lost all that, haven't we, Oh, it's all gone, yeah. All all we do now is coffee shops. Well, that's about it. Yes, you're right. One coffee shop to the next. Yes, it's a bit like uh, I live in South Yarra. It's a bit like Ligon Street, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's all just one coffee shop after another. I know they're, they're everywhere. You can't escape them. It's, it's such a shame. I don't like coffee. It uh, does my head in. Yeah. Well, just getting back to that business about the live element. Um, you know, most radio stations, not all but many commercial radio stations in the city and probably in regional areas too, they had their own auditorium. Yes. They had their own auditorium where they would either do quiz shows, radio plays, kids' programs. I can remember 3AW had their auditorium in uh, Russell Street opposite what was then the King's Theatre became Greater Union Theatres, and I think it's now uh, uh, apartments, but it's just up from Burke Street, and you went in, 
and they had their own auditorium where Jim Woody Wood would conduct rumpus time at five o'clock in the afternoon. And if you were lucky enough, you could go in and sit there and watch it, you know, and all that sort of thing. Yes. Later, of course, if Jack Davey came down, they'd do a Dulux show, although most of those were done in Sydney. But, you know, no wonder kids like us idolised the greats the Bob Dyers, the Jack Davies, uh, Norman Banks, you know, yeah. wonderful, wonderful. I, I actually uh, just the other day got my hand on some photos of Jack Davy in the auditorium with uh, Fred Tupper was also there. I'm trying to think oh, who yes. else was there. But, uh, yes, Dennis Gibbons probably would have been around at that time, Dennis. Yeah, wonderful. And uh, so many other wonderful people. And, you know, you mentioned Jack Davey. Well, we, I mentioned Jack Davey too. But, you know, uh, I was just so thrilled. During the run of New Faces on Channel 9, which was the talent show, um, uh, Bert uh, d took over from Frank Wilson at one stage and took it through for many years. Uh, one of the judges was... Uh, Rod McLennan. Do you remember Rod? Oh, yes, yes. And uh, Rod McLennan and Tim Evans and Bobby Lim were judges at various times. And I think at that stage we were recording the program at the Fun Factory down in Richmond, as we <laughs> affectionately <laughs> called it. Uh, we were recording the program on a Friday evening and it would go out on a Sunday night. But uh, the reason I mention it is Rod came in one Friday afternoon all hot and bothered. I said, oh, what's the matter, Rod? He said, oh, I've been in a rush. I've just flown down from Sydney. I've been up there for the week doing this pilot. I said, oh, what pilot are you doing? He said, oh, it's a sitcom uh, on, uh, on on the lives, uh, the friendly rivalry between, uh, well, sometimes not so friendly, between Bob Dyer and Jack Davey, which, of course, was a very real thing during those days. Yes. They were on on air rivals and anyway i said oh and i my ears picked up i thought this is wonderful tell me about it he said oh no well we've done the pilot and we're hopeful uh, you know channel seven will uh, take it through and blah 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 i said oh god he said i've got the co a copy of it here on a vhs i said oh rod would could i borrow that come with me while i copy it but uh, can i please i was almost down on my hands and knees i couldn't believe it so I got this copy, and I don't know if I've ever passed it on to you. No, I've nev I'd never knew but, this existed till now. But that is something to pass on to you because, and that's a promise I will make tonight, because I tell you what, it is a gem. Unfortunately, I think in reality, even in the late, I think it was the late 80s, around that time, I think they probably missed the boat in as much as the general population wouldn't have really recognised Bob Dyer and Jack Davey. Yeah. They'd long gone, and that's sad, but, you know, that's why I don't think it worked, because it was wonderful. Barry Otto was in it. Uh, uh, John Hewitt uh, played uh, Jack Davey. Slim de Grey played Bob Dyer. And, uh, oh, it was just a, a, a marvellous piece. And as I say, as shaky as it is on the old VHS, um it's it's a, I just feel it's a it's a gem a collector's item. Oh, absolutely! I'm quite excited so, at the thought of watching this. Well, there you are. You've got your Christmas present coming up. Okay, <laughs> lovely. Um, now, Pete, let's go back to uh, your first appearance in the media. How did it come about that uh, you turned up? Because you're on the ABC, I know before uh, before the Channel Nine days. But uh, where was your first ever appearance? Well, I think it probably was on the ABC, and uh, at, at that stage, in those years, that's when you could start out as a messenger boy and maybe work your way up. 
And so that was the way in for a kid from St Kilda. So I started at Broadcast House. Uh, and again, it's not what you know, it's who you know. My father's cousin, Jeff Brook, the crooner. Yes. I don't know whether you know that name. I, but, uh, I have heard Jeff that. was related to us and uh, he knew the program manager, Daryl Miley. And there was an opening for a messenger boy. So I got the job there. And uh, just over the years, and I think I was in the job about four years, nagging them to death to let me have a go at uh, at doing the radio announcing. But, of course, a kid from St Gilda didn't have much, uh, <laughs> much class. So it took quite a <laughs> while to establish myself. But in those days... It was a charter of the ABC, that is the Australian Broadcasting Commission. It's not the the place I worked at is not the one they are operating today. I can tell you. No, sorry to say, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> every every year they had to by charter hold auditions for announcers. Right, and uh, they did this on a national scale. So each year, over those years, I was the messenger boy. I. I'd put my name down, and of course I failed every time because you had to pronounce, uh, you know, foreign no, classical record names, uh, Jove, uh, you know, uh, Vorjak, for Vorjak, uh, one of the noted composers yes. uh, from Europe, uh, Vorjak, the name is spelt D-V-O-R-A-K. So, of course, a kid from St Kilda would pronounce it Dvorak. Dvorak. <laughs> and that put... <laughs> yeah, and that put me straight out. So it took quite a few years, but finally uh, they gave me an opportunity to be a cadet announcer, and uh, I went on from there. And it was a wonderful training ground because there was, uh, you know, over twenty full-time announcers. You've got to understand the ABC at Broadcast House in Melbourne, on the corner of William and Lonsdale Street. Now the County Court, so no sign of it whatsoever there now. But they were the headquarters for Radio Australia, broadcasting to the world, really. Yeah. Radio Australia, the regional uh, network, and, of course, the home service of uh, what was then 3LO and 3AR. And uh, so it was a busy sort of a place to grow up in, but a wonderful uh, training ground because the senior announcers there, I could reel off names to you, it wouldn't mean anything perhaps to your listeners, but my mentor, Keith Glover, unfortunately no longer with us. Keith had been uh, in the entertainment group during the war, up in New Guinea with uh, a guy called Harry Hammond. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Happy. He became Happy Hammond. And Keith and Happy did a uh, comedy act uh, on the uh, on the Tivoli at one stage as well. So he had a great uh, show business background, Keith Glover. And so I was able to uh, go under his wing and finally get on the air and uh, uh, in the sporting panel of an afternoon and that's how I sort of started and then being you know being the kid being 18 or something they gave me the hit parade to do you know the 10 top tunes of the week yes yes so uh, I used to do that and I also did it on Radio Australia and uh, it was translated into different languages as well but mine my uh, my program was broadcast to North America to the British Isles to Asia during a time when in Asia, particularly in Indonesia, during uh, President Sukarno's, I don't really remember that name, during his reign, uh, it was a very totalitarian society and Western music was very much discouraged. So unless you had, uh, they wouldn't play it on the local radio stations. So, But if you were lucky enough to have a shortwave radio, you could pick up the likes of Elvis Presley and Rolling Stones. 
you know, they were going then too. Wow. And uh, so it was that they could pick up the voice of the free world. And uh, I guess I'd been away from the ABC because I've been at Channel 9 now, uh, you know, well, I'm there sort of part-time now, but 60 years coming up. And <laughs> it's uh, it's quite an amazing, been an amazing ride. But uh, I was away from uh, the ABC about 20 years and I was walking down Burke Street and this young fellow of Asian descent rushed out at me smiling and beaming. And, you know, normally if somebody rushes at you, you think, what's going on, especially in <laughs> Burke Street. But anyway, this is, you know, this is now 30 years ago or more. And he said, oh, hello. He said, you're Pete Smith. I said, yes. He said, oh, I'd just like to say hello because when I was a little boy, my father had a shortwave radio in our village in Sarawak and we used to listen to your hit parade. Wow. I said, oh, that's fantastic. And he said, yeah, and I just want to shake your hand because I'm now working at Radio Australia as an interpreter. And I thought, gee, what a wonderful full circle. I never realised the power of it. That is fabulous. What a, what a, a, a you was an inspiration to a young man in another country and now he's out here doing that. <laughs> that's just wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, it really drove it home to me. And then, of course, with this hit parade thing, I know it sounds a bit toy now because all the commercial stations, of course, were doing Top 40 yes. blanket covering of pop music. And as you know, Talkback came in as a counter to television and uh, successfully so too, never more so at, uh, at the nine network of stations, but in your station. But anyway, and I hope people are listening tonight. I'm sure they are. <laughs> but anyway, with the hit parade, uh, the manager came to me at one stage and said, uh, oh, now, Peter, and I thought, hello, they're going to drop it out or something. He said, uh, you know, the television has started down at Ripon Lee. And I said, oh, yes. He said, uh, we'd like you to do the hit parade down there. I said, oh, uh, oh, what? So what, what do I sit on a chair and look at the camera and introduce the records? He said, yes. I said, well, what will we do while the records are running? You know, this is 14 years before Countdown. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he said, oh, well, we'll run the sporting results. We'll do it on a Saturday afternoon. We'll run the sporting <laughs> results while Elvis Presley seconds blew away. So, yes, they had this, you know, what's a credit crawl. You know, you see the credits at the end of a movie. Yes. Well, now, of course, today they're all computer-generated. But back in those days, it was a true, uh, it was a tower of steel with rollers top and bottom and a little electric motor, and they'd feed paper onto it, type, uh, that they'd type all the results on the paper and reel it in front of the camera, roll it in front of the camera, and uh, they used lavatory paper too because it didn't shine back into it was absorbent yes. <laughs> didn't shine back into the lens and i i admired the lady who used to type at great speed you know ranwick race one horse one two three and all this and get it on for each song and uh, i admired her because you know she'd do that at great speed and miss the perforations that's wonderful a, that is amazing <laughs> and and uh, there's no room for typos or anything there that's no, and finally, I got a bit sick of this after about six months, and yes, we still had the race results, I couldn't get rid of them, but I used to, never mind the copyright, I'd cut out any magazine or paper or Woman's Weekly I could find pictures of Elvis Presley or Connie Francis or Johnny Burnett or any of the stars of the day, and I'd stick them down onto pieces of cardboard, and I'd flip them in front of a camera. <laughs> so, as a sort of, I don't say I invented the flip card, but, you know, the camera would swing around and I'd have about 10 cardboard cutouts and I'd flip them one after the other. And, of course, the, the eye couldn't see the flip. It looked as though it was an effect. 
which it was, of course. That's wonderful. So there you go, the granddaddy of Countdown. That is that is marvellous. And just to, to think of people sitting at home watching, uh, you know, cardboard cutouts, uh, or pieces of cardboard with uh, newspaper and magazine clippings on them whilst listening well, to mean, the... Well, yeah, I yeah. I know. Well, your older listeners would equate with that, but younger people wouldn't. But, you know, back in those days, I mean, it was a novelty. It wasn't the graveyard of television Saturday afternoon. Mm. It was a big deal because, I mean, the thought of pictures coming through the air. How could that possibly be? Yes. We had it on our own. People were staring at test patterns, Simon. (laughs) I used to to watch the... um, The uh, the thing that always fascinated me was uh, leading up to uh, either the 6 or 7 o'clock news, I can't remember, on on Channel 2, the the ABC, as it were, and they'd have a clock that would count down. uh, You'd see the second hand going around until bang hit the hour and then the news would start. Well, nine had the same thing because we were relaying in the days before coaxial cable even or anything else, we were actually relaying in Melbourne tonight to GLV-10 as it was, GLV-10 in Gippsland. yes. And goodness knows what the picture looked like down there, but we were relaying the program there. And so they had clock and time with wind speed on the side it's quite a classic uh, photo, if you can see an old photo of the nine, the nine clock. But yes, we used to count down, and there was an agreed starting time. It was supposed to be nine thirty, but sometimes, if there was a, a lot of commercials in the program, they might agree to start at nine thirty-one or even sometimes nine twenty-nine and a half, and that had to be agreed on and then relayed to GLV that we would start at that time. And so uh, sometimes, if we're running a bit late. The program before was Coronation Street yes. on 16mm film and they had the capacity in the projector to speed it up. If oh. we were, <laughs> they could speed it up and probably pick up over about 28 minutes. They could pick up almost a minute. But it, what it would, would do, it would... Uh, it would make the voices sound a little bit toppy. Yes. <laughs> you know, sometimes people would say, oh, Ina Sharples, she must have had a, uh, something wrong with her throat tonight. Yes. Nobody, <laughs> nobody tweaked to it. But, yes, so there's the famous thing where this is uh, GTV9 relaying to GLV10 Gippsland. It's 9.30. And, you know, off you'd go. Yeah. That is fabulous. She would have, would have just been moving that little bit faster as well. They would have thought there was something in her coffee. <laughs> That's right. It was just the suspicion of it, exactly. Oh, that is marvellous. Um, and the other thing, I, I think, the test pattern. I, I remember when we got a colour television and to see the test pattern, that that circular one with all the colours in it. Uh, oh, yeah. That was just, I, I just remember staring at all the colours in it when we got a colour oh, TV. Oh, you, men- you, men- you mentioned colour. I was staring at it in black and white. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> no I've, moved, I've moved forward now to the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was still a novelty, wasn't it, to get that little set there set up. And I can remember you had to have a technician come out. A guy would come out in a dust coat and tune the set for you. Is that right? Sake. Yeah, now you buy your 85-inch, you go home, they say, ooh, and you press a button and it 
does it itself. Yeah, I know, it's amazing now. And oh, yes, you had to have a technician come out. And I can remember my wife, uh, Jackie's, I was just courting her at that stage, but uh, they were one of the first in the street with a, <laughs> a television. I think it was just a little 17-inch on three sticks, but, boy, what a novelty. And the lounge room was set up like a theatre. Every available chair in the house, including deck chairs from out in the garden, were brought in. And if you were a favoured neighbour, you'd be asked down at 4.30 to see, you know, Tom Mix or the Sisto Kid. <laughs> That's wonderful. The, uh, and when before we got onto flat screen televisions, of course, I remember Philip Brady bought a uh, a large and very large screen television. I think it cost him about ten thousand dollars, and it's about half the size of a Volkswagen sitting in his lounge room because of the, <laughs> the depth needed for that uh, cathode ray tube or whatever it was. Oh, yeah. Well, Philip was always first uh, with things. And you talk about playing radio stations. I, I don't think Philip has ever admitted this on air, but his first experience of radio, and this is back before we did uh, Broody's Hideout, which uh, morphed into, as you know, thank you for the plug, from the hideout. Yes. Philip, Philip used to set up in his laundry, he had a wind-up gramophone, and he used to play 78 records in there as a studio, and that was his first foray into it. Isn't that lovely? Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the, uh, that uh, the echo it would be quite good for the voice if he was announcing something? Oh, no, if he wanted echo, he just opened the toilet door. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wonderful. Now, they were wonderful old days, formative days, you know, and, uh, you know, timing's everything, Simon. And uh, as young as you are, you can still relate back to those, uh, you know, those pioneering days of radio, really. Well, uh, uh, yes, well, I, uh, my early radio was uh, was basically Black as an Unker on 3AW, was uh, yeah. the radio that I loved, and, and Gavin Wood and Molly Meldrum on Eon FM, because uh, we, my sister got a little uh, portable cassette deck that had AM and FM on it, and it was uh, quite an exciting thing to, uh, to revolutionary to have the two on the one radio AM and FM. Yeah, yes, and it, it had a twin cassette deck too, so I could uh, make my own mixtapes as I did, and and tape songs off the radio, and get annoyed when the announcer spoke over the start or finish <laughs> of them, as we all yes. did back in those days. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, now, Pete, we should get on to uh, some favourites, given that's that's what the sort of purpose of this is. Uh, so I have a list of 50 <laughs> things, and I'm going to close my eyes, randomly point at one, and ask you your favourite, uh, and in this instance, your favourite shop. Oh, well, my favourite shop, I've got to tell you, here's another plug coming up, is The Hideout, down in, just on the edge of McRae Rosebud. Yeah. Point Nepean Road. They serve the most delicious breakfasts down there. And when I'm down there sometimes with my golfing mates, I go in there and I really relish the uh, the beautiful, beautiful cafe they've got there. And it's called The Hideout, coincidentally. What a, what a coincidence. There's a sponsorship opportunity if ever I've heard one. So you thought I was going to say Francois in Turak Road, didn't you? <laughs> No, actually, I, I was uh, waiting for you to name an op shop because I, I know you're very partial to ducking into op shops. Well, I go into op shops, and as we pointed this out in the podcast, I go into op shops looking for rare, I'm saying rare because I hardly ever find them, CDs and DVDs for 
and, and my main ones I'm looking for are the ones that Tony Martin and Mick Malloy did when they were doing their drive time radio show. Oh, it's the Brown uh, album. And, uh, yeah, the Brown album, Poop Shoot, yes. was another double CD. <laughs> and uh, also Eat Your Peas. Have you got that one as well? I think I've got Eat Your Peas, yes. I don't think yeah. I've, I've got Poop Shoot. Uh, but I've, I've well, definitely got the Brown album and each of <laughs> Well, anyway, there you go. Well, I'll look, keep looking for one for you. I'll, uh, and the other, the DVDs, I'm looking for The Late Show. Yes. That the Working Dog Boys and Girls did. Uh, and you never, well, you rarely see them. No. You see plenty of, you see plenty of Mandavani and even, dare I say, Frank Sinatra and Perry Como and yes. all that stuff. But you rarely see these because I feel... People don't want to get rid of them. No, they're, they're the ones that you keep, yes. You, you'll Simple pa- as that. You'll pass on your Dennis Walter albums and your uh, Kamal uh, albums as well, but uh, but no, there's some things you never part with. <laughs> um, Favourite brand? Well, that's a that's a rather wide net to cast, but is, does Pete Smith have a favourite brand in anything? Well, I've never really thought about favourite brands, I've got to say. Uh, Have you been I've devoted got... to you know, a particular uh, car that you... you, you... Oh, well, uh, well, my first car was a Morris 840, a little one with a folding hood. You know, when I was on the was starting out, uh, when people were on the road, it was either the quick or the dead. It was really uh, flying by the seat of your pants in this old car, but that was uh, a foray into that. So I, I don't know, really. I've never thought about brands, but I suppose... Uh, when it comes to brands, Birkenstock is always uh, oh yeah. Look, look, I always look down on Birkenstock, you know, because <laughs> I'm wearing them. <laughs> Do you wear the sandal ones or a covered? Yes, because they make no, a covered uh, shoe as well. Yeah, they do. My son wears those and wears nothing else. Uh, and they've got no back in them, so I don't know how he keeps them on. But uh, and mind you, neither are the sandals, but uh, they're very comfortable and they've got a bit of arch support in it. I went to school with a boy called Arch Support. <laughs> Uh, favourite childhood toy? Oh, well, I think without a doubt, and funnily enough, I just had a look at, I've kept it away because I thought, well, gee, my grandchildren might like it, my kids enjoyed it, and that is a Viewmaster. Oh, lovely, yes. And a Viewmaster is one of those stereoscopic 3D things that you hold up to your eyes and you put in this little circle of photos, and it's only small, you know, it's handheld, and you put this circle of photos in, and then you click, and this circle moves around, showing stereocopic pictures. Well, there were cartoons, uh, many travel uh, uh, subjects, of course, uh, from faraway lands, and that was the first opportunity to see them in true three dimensions it was and so i've kept that all that time and i suppose now they're well i never see them actually now i must say maybe they're considered to be passe but uh, the three i think they'd be quite collectible nowadays especially if they're i don't know how many discs were ever made but i I remember having a mickey mouse one and uh, and, oh you do remember it. oh yes and and i had one that also had wildlife on it so there was there was a lion coming out of a bush and i think a giraffe or something yes all that sort of stuff but it was a sort of back in the days well as you know 3d really they had a couple of goes at 3d in the movies and uh, i don't don't know why, but it just didn't. People didn't seem to want to wear the glasses, and 
all that sort of thing. So it was a novelty for a while. Yeah. Do you remember the re- the uh, the recent, the most recent one in recent years? They, uh, uh, you av- know, the theatre. Avatar, I think, was a, sort of a. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah, yes, but exactly. But, yeah, but I was just just happy to watch it in two D. I, I don't need the three D in a cinema. I think it's. I find it a bit distracting. Well, I, we, uh, you know, we love the cinema, and I love IMAX, and of course, uh, they say it's the world's biggest screen in there at the museum at uh, in Melbourne. And uh, the IMAX theatre is in there. I don't know whether you've ever been. Yes. But, you know, I went to see, not Avatar, but one of those uh, science, uh, one of the, uh, Star Wars, one of those. Oh, yeah. And I I just felt as magnificent as the presentation was, the screen was too big. There was too much going on on the screen for you to take in somehow. It's, it's, It's like if you're sitting at the, when you go to a regular cinema, you never want to sit in the front row because the screen's too big. So why would we go to IMAX? I don't mean to bag IMAX. It's it's no. It's I'm a pleased very to di- know you. You feel the same way. Well, uh, to me, the ultimate was uh, CinemaScope when it first came out, and of course we take it for granted now. The widescreen uh, is there for most, uh, you know, the letterbox or whatever you want to call it, is there now even on your TV. But back in those early days in the 50s when CinemaScope started, I can remember at the Regent Theatre, they built this huge box out because, of course, the proscenium arch wasn't wide enough to take the CinemaScope screen. And they built this box out so that they could put a larger screen in and it wasn't too long before they pulled it all out and realised that, it again, it was just a bit unwieldy, you know, too big. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, and then my favourite, I know we've got off the subject, was down below the region at the plaza, the plaza ballroom. Yes, yes. And that started, it's now a ballroom. It started its life as a ballroom. And I did a, I, um, I do some work for fundraising work for the O'Brien Institute, which is a medical uh, uh, institution in Melbourne, and uh, they do some wonderful restorative work. Uh, for instance, about five years ago, they sewed a man's hand back on in Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, it was completely severed, and they successfully sewed the man's hand back on. And at the Christmas fundraising function at the Plaza Ballroom, I had the honour of shake. well, it was an honour, shaking his hand. Oh. Now, you can make jokes and say, oh, did it come off? No, but seriously, they, they do a wonderful job. And anyway, so I was down there last week at the Plaza Ballroom. There's no finer venue, in, in my opinion, you know, for special functions. But that, at one stage, was a movie theatre. When I was growing up as a kid, yeah. I'd go there. I would go to the plaza to see, uh, well, for instance, when Cinerama was introduced. Remember Cinerama? Yes, yes. It was a three-projector three-projector process, so it was a very expensive thing to do. In order to get this big wraparound screen, they had three projectors, each showing a section. And, yes, there was a tiny scene that you could see, but, uh, you know, in general, it was quite a stunning thing to see. And so How the West Was Won was uh, released originally as a Cinerama feature, and that sort of thing. It became uh, very, very expensive to run and finally went back to a one-projector process, which was a little bit, uh, you know, less or wasn't as wide, for instance. But I loved the plaza 
and I don't know how we got on. I got onto this subject because <laughs> I pushed you onto it. But I, I can remember as a kid, they in they in the fifties there was a film, a sex education film, a feature film called We Want a Child, and the main feature of the film was the birth of a baby. Now they oh. screened. They used to have four four sessions a day in the cinemas in the city. They'd have a morning, they'd have a matinee, they'd have an intermediate at five o'clock, and then they'd have the evening session at eight o'clock. And for the We Want a Child presentation at the plaza, it was segregated audiences. In other words, the morning session would have been for women. Yes. The afternoon session for men the intermediate session for ladies again, and at night, men. So <laughs> they thought it was so provocative to see the birth of a baby on a big screen that that's, they had to segregate the audience. What were they worried about? That so people were going to say, that looks <laughs> well, like a good idea, let's make one now. <laughs> let your mind wander. <laughs> what the hell would they be worried about? I mean, now we take it for granted. God, it's on the 6 o'clock news. Yes, exactly. <laughs> You know, and some of the things that they show now on TV, you talk about making a baby blush, yes. uh, a sailor blush. Well, I also but, just uh, think, I've got four children. I was there for all of their births, and, and you know, yeah. it, there's there's nothing there that would require you to segregate because the experience is, it's, it's not sort of sweet until it's all over. It's, it's, no, but it wasn't it's any quite scary. Acts. There wasn't any sex acts in this film. No. I'm sure you could find it in YouTube or something. We want a child. And it was probably as boring as, you know, what, but <laughs> uh, it had the birth of a baby in it. And so, uh, and of course, children weren't allowed, so I never saw it. I only know it by reputation. But, oh. uh, yeah. That, that reminds I mean, me of Dar Darren James told the story uh, quite recently of um, when he was young and the, the, the stage show Hair came to town. And oh yeah, he wasn't allowed to see it, but his—I uh, his, think his sister was, because uh, because she, <laughs> she was a little older than him, and so yes. he he had to go and see something else. I think Marsha Hines came out for that too, didn't she? That's that, right. She yes. was one of the performers. I think uh, introduced Marsha to Australia, but it was up at the Metro Collins Street or whatever it was called by then. I don't know. It's now apartments, is it? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, Probably, uh, yeah. I don't. I don't know. To be honest, myself, no. Um, all right, now, another favourite. What about favourite book character? Oh well, uh, I don't think you could go past the Tony Martin books, and that's him himself. Lolly Scramble is uh, my favourite. Yes, his. he's put out several books. And, Lolly and Scramble. Uh, this is unashamedly a plug, isn't it? But no, I, I, I just I've read that book several times. It's such a laugh. It's about his early life in. Uh, in uh, New, New Zealand, Zealand yes. Uh, and, uh, oh, he tells a wonderful story. And I reckon it's the basis for a movie, but uh, he's never gone ahead with it. But anyway. Is, is that the one, uh, was it that or in uh, his, his other one, A Nest of Occasionals, I think was the name oh, of yes. his other one. That's, one yeah. of them, he tells the story of a big ball of string in someone's cupboard or elastic <laughs> bands or something. I know, but it's just, a, he's just got, well, he's a wonderful storyteller. I've got to say that, to make up something out of nothing. And while I say that to you, may I please just explain to your listeners, I hope I've explained it to you properly, Mervyn Purvis. Yes. <laughs> now, Mervyn, <laughs> Mervyn uh, was on uh, episode five of... Uh, from the hideout, yes, uh, and but that's not the Mervyn Purvis 
made famous by Bruce Mansfield. No. I, I, I've i looked into it, and I think they must have been related way back. Right. But the character Mervyn Purvis, which, I mean, I don't know how many of those wonderful quizzes and things you've got on tape, but they were just, uh, uh, you know, a highlight of uh, what the boys did and what you did too of an evening there. So I hope you have got some. I've, I've got I've got hundreds. Many of them, I used to put them up as a podcast, but I had to go through and listen to each one before I'd put it up because some of them required a little bit of editing because it's amazing <laughs> how times have changed just from the 1990s to now. Oh, and oh there was, yes. There was some stuff that was just completely unacceptable that we used to do on the wireless. Isn't that amazing that you've got a second guess what, you know, when you're playing something historically, um, I, I just think that's, what a, it's a shame in a way, isn't it? That you, But look, maybe we were uncaring and unthinking back in those days. I mean, I, you know, you talk about that. What about the things we used to do on in Melbourne tonight and that sort of thing? Well, yes. I mean, all the sketches and that, of which Mervyn Purvis was a character. <laughs> Yes, Mervyn Purvis at one stage, and, and uh, I'm sure it had its beginnings really back at the Tivoli because Freddie Parsons, dear Freddie, who we loved so much, he was uh, Roy Reen, Mo McCackie's chief comedy writer, and when that Tivoli era finished, sometime after, Nine invited him to come over and write opening remarks for Graham Kennedy for the five nights a week live variety show. Yes. And, of course, when he came over, unwittingly, he had with him all these wonderful vintage comedy sketches that, uh, you know, that uh, they'd done on the Tivoli years before. And, of course, let's face it, if you remember the old IMT days with us doing the, the Roman sketches and, the, the you know, the spoofs and all that sort of thing, um, they really had their beginnings in vaudeville. Yes, yes. You, you, you can see the influence there and it's wonderful. And but you have to be, as you say. I've looked at a couple back. You can see them on YouTube. There's a, uh, And, again, I think Tony and his mates have set up well, somebody just set, set it up. It certainly wasn't me. There's a YouTube channel called Pete Smith Speaking. Have you seen? Have you? No, I haven't. <clears throat> well, well, some of those things are on that, but I only mention it because, uh, as you say, in today's light, um, uh, some of the things that went on would be unacceptable, I suppose. Uh, you know, uh, like I'm kissing Rosie Sturgis. Uh, she's uh, Cleopatra or something, and Nero comes in, and it's Graham in his, uh, you know, toga. Yes. And says, Fraticus, what are you doing with my Tarticus? <laughs> <laughs> and all this, all sort of thing. And uh, it's, it's, some of the things were innocuous, but I can recall when I first went to Nine in the mid-60s, 64, they opened in Melbourne tonight with a full production on a Wednesday night, I think every fortnight, with the black and white minstrels. Yes. Everybody dressed up in the black and white minstrel show. Well, it was a very, very big show on television for the BBC. Very big. Mm. It played it again. We mentioned Her Majesty's. I can remember as a kid, it played there as a big feature musical, the black and white minstrels, and every fortnight, 
IMT would open with this. Graham would be the only person not in blackface. He would be the uh, master of ceremony sort of thing, you know, in his gold suit. Yes. Because everybody had to quick change, of course. It was a nightmare. You had to get the black stuff off and get ready for the next comedy sketch or something. So it was, uh, it was uh, you know, flying by the seat of your pants. But, uh, yeah, and so uh, can you imagine that today? Oh, oh we're going to put... <laughs> You can't. I mean, I'm probably even insulting people mentioning it. Well, I, I, I've got I've got footage of the of Graham's Graham Kennedy's minstrels, and uh, I've have not. You? Yes, well, and I've not put it up on social media because I, I just there will be idiots out there who want to try and put that in today's context and then well, label sorry, you all as being incredibly awful people. And, well, I don't believe you can legitimately take it out of context. I it, think it's a legitimate part of history. It is. It was, and uh, I don't believe. That those shows were ever done with any malice whatsoever. I mean, Al Jolson, for goodness sake, you wouldn't have a job. No, exactly. Al Jolson, yeah. you know, goodness me. Yeah, I, I think Amazing. you must, when, when, when calculating whether to be offended by something, you really have to take into account intent. And if, That's right. and if you don't do that, then you're a fool. So. Yeah, I saw Al Jolson, you know, in this, uh, uh, that first, well, attributed to be the first talkie in 1925, the jazz singer. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it, it's supposed to be the first talkie, but there wasn't talking in it. All the songs were uh, on, you know, audible. Yes. But the, there was no dialogue in there because they hadn't perfected that yet. But, uh, gee, it takes me back. But, yes, Al Jolson made his career was in blackface. Exactly. And that led to Izzy Die having a lengthy career as well, doing his Al Jolson well, tribute show. Absolutely. And, you know, Izzy is uh, still alive and kicking and doing these tribute shows. And uh, I'm not sure where his latest one is, but I saw the, uh, again, as a fundraiser for the O'Brien Institute, he did his, uh, and I'd never seen it before, he did his Jolson tribute, and it was sensational. Mm. Terrific. Yep. Amazing. Uh, Pete, we're probably out of time. You've been very, uh, very generous with your time, I have to say, and uh, thank you for it. I've, I've got a thousand other things I could ask you about favourites of, but we'll have to get you back another time. Well, I just want to apologise to everybody for not shutting up. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I do. I was. I think I, I was, as they say, another old-fashioned saying. I was, as a child, indoctrinated with a gramophone needle. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're a fabulous guest. You have such fabulous stories, and uh, it's always an honour and a privilege to speak with you. Well, it's an honour to be uh, be a friend with somebody who is so passionate about the radio scene as you are. And thank goodness, because you've got all that that arc, archive work is so important. Because otherwise, history gets lost. And with you. It's, it's maintaining a healthy future. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you once again, Pete Smith. Goodbye now.